ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. At Vanguard, clients are more than investors, they're owners. That means we always seek to focus on client objectives, aligning our goals with investor goals, and staying disciplined. Vanguard Fixed Income Investors own low-cost products that reflect these priorities, which can enhance outcomes. That's the value of ownership. Visit Vanguard.com to obtain a fund prospectus or, if available, a summary prospectus which contains investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and other information. Read and consider carefully before investing. All investing is subject to risk. Fund shareholders own the funds which own Vanguard. Investments in bond funds are subject to interest rate, credit, and inflation risk. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be both Bob Hum, who is U.S. head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock, and Hitendra Barsani, managing director of MSCI Solutions Research. We're going to cover a topic that is getting a lot more attention this year, given the market environment, and that's factor investing. And I'll tell you now, Bob and Hitendra. We're talking about two true experts in this area. Uh, you're going to be hard-pressed to find two individuals who know more about factor investing than they do. And I'm looking forward to this. We're going to specifically dive into the value and minimum volatility factors. Because if you look at those this year, both of these are working. They're both delivering better returns than the broader market. And I think there's a reasonable case to be made that could certainly continue moving forward. So we'll talk about what's going on with both of those factors and also just more broadly discuss factor-based investing and due diligence around the growing number of factor ETFs. Now, later, I'll be joined by Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares, who, of course, they recently launched the Short Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BITI, BIDI, which is already up uh, to over... $60 million in assets, by the way. But we're going to discuss the uh, construction of that ETF, which I do think is extremely important for investors to understand, uh, especially given that there are a lot of Bitcoin <laughs> skeptics out there. So this ETF might be enticing to them. So we'll get into how BitEye works. Uh, I also want to take a look at their long Bitcoin strategy ETF, uh, BitO, B-I-T-O, and how that's performed. And then, yes... We will talk spot Bitcoin ETF. I apologize in advance. Now, to start this week, I have Vetify's Dave Nodig on the line with me. Dave is financial futurist at Vetify, and we have some uh, excellent Twitter questions to get into. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Welcome back to the podcast. Did we just chat yesterday or am I imagining that? <laughs> it does seem like it was just a moment ago, doesn't it? Yeah, for those of you uh, who don't know, Vetify hosted a uh, Twitter Spaces yesterday where Dave uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas and yours truly debated one of my favorite topics, which is ESG investing. And Dave, I really enjoyed that. One, one thing I do want to tell you, I love how Vetify is using these spaces for debate and learning. You're not just out there pushing the narrative. I, I see some of these Twitter spaces pop up and I feel like, it's just somebody pushing a particular narrative. You're holding these in, in an attempt to really try to help educate people and hear both sides of, of various topics out there. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, it's one of my favorite formats ever. It reminds me a little bit of podcasting in the sense that when you get some people that are used to doing this, you can really sort of dig into some stuff and, and really debate a few things. So that's how I love to use Twitter spaces. I'll keep doing those as long as people show up. Yeah, and I'll tell everybody the recording from that is out there. So if you go to Vetify uh, or ETFtrends.com, there's a, a blog that was posted yesterday evening, and within that blog, you can go listen to the, uh, the whole debate. Again, it was a lot of fun. Okay, Dave, before we get into the Twitter questions that I have, yesterday afternoon, we got word that it looks like the SEC is approving these uh, leverage and inverse single stock ETF. So, for example, yep. there, there will be a 1.5 times bull and bear PayPal ETF. That's going to come from uh, Axis. Now, uh, along with this, the SEC put out a statement on single stock ETFs. And the, the statement in particular that I came across was from Commissioner Crenshaw. And I just want to read you one passage. You may have seen this. I, I tweeted this out last night, but I think it, it bears uh, having me read out on the, uh, on the podcast here. So she says, because of the features of these products and their associated risks, it would likely be challenging for an investment professional to recommend such a product to a retail investor while also honoring his or her fiduciary obligations or obligations under regulation best interest. However, retail investors can and do access leverage and inverse exchange traded products through self-directed trading. While investors can gain similar upside and downside exposures to uh, inequity security through the use of options and other derivatives, Single stock ETFs are likely to be uniquely accessible and convenient for self-directed retail investors in particular. And the, the reason why I highlight that passage, I found it um, contradictory that the SEC is approving these products. And they're, they're saying right here, or at least Commissioner Crenshaw is, financial advisors shouldn't use these. They shouldn't recommend these to their clients. But hey, if retail investors have access yeah. to these, hey, no, no big deal. Now, I'll also, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this, I'll color that if you go read the entire statement here. Um, I, I wouldn't say Crenshaw was dissenting per se, but you know she's, she's taking a critical look and saying, should the SEC be doing more to protect retail investors? But at the end of the, the day, they approve these things. So, so well, what are your thoughts on all this? I actually think it's even worse than you think it is. So we also had... Uh, Lori Schock, who's the Director of Education and Advocacy for the SEC, put out their own statement effectively saying these are not right for every investor and these have real problems, but I guess we're approving them anyway. I mean, I'll, I'll, that's the shorthand for it. So it does feel a little bit like we're reading dissents on the Supreme Court opinion here. A hundred percent. Which is extremely unusual. I, I, I honestly, I mean, yes, we've had 
you know, people like Hester Peirce out talking about crypto and stuff uh, and, and being critical of some of the non-decisions that the SEC has made. This is the first time I can recall sort of these dissenting voices, too, that we've now highlighted from within the SEC basically saying we're approving these, but we have concerns. Uh, and that should give people a little bit of ca- pause, don't you think? A hundred percent. What? Let me ask you this: What kind of demand do you think these products will will have? Because I think we're going to see well, a boatload of these things launch. Yeah, we're going to see a ton of these launch. We've got filings from AXS, Granite Shares, Direction that I can think of off the top of my head, and I think there are a few other folks in the wings. It's a bit of a horse race to see who can get the juiciest product with the cleanest ticker out first, right? Because there obviously will really only be, you know, one levered Netflix ETF that anybody trades, et cetera, right? So there, there's a bit of a race to the, uh, to the door here. Uh, I think we'll see there'll be a lot of activity in these, just like we have in Europe. These have been enormously successful trading on the LSE. There's a whole raft of these things launched on the LSE, uh, including a bunch of them over there that are actually just fractionalized shares. They're actually 1x exposure, but you can get say, Netflix for $4 or Berkshire Hathaway for 10 as opposed to having to pay the full share price, uh, which that seems like a little bit much to me because we're entering a fractional share world in most brokerage accounts. Um, so there is, I, I think we're going to see a ton of activity around them. Uh, my concern, honestly, is not that people don't understand that they're getting leveraged. They're just not going to understand how rebalance math works because this is what happens every time there's a leverage and inverse product that gets a little bit of traction, we have to go and explain to everybody again that you can't hold your inverse 3x Tesla for six months and hope that it will get you the six month negative return times three of Tesla. That's not how they work. And that's just going to be confusing. Yeah, that's the uh, the biggest issue here is that volatility decay. I did see somebody on Twitter made a good point. I think it was a uh, Tariq Dennison, who I've actually had on the podcast before. He was a little bit surprised at the uh, the, the ticker's on these, and his point was that maybe there could be some confusion in the marketplace. If you have a bunch of different, say, PayPal uh, ETFs floating around, if you go look at the way those tickers are are constructed, oh, it's, a, it's a nightmare. Yeah, it's a apocalypse. I thought that it's, was a good gonna, point. I mean, I think we talked about this maybe back in March or something, Nate, when these things first, with some of the early, early filings were going in, um, and and I, we talked about just this is going to be a ticker apocalypse. They're going to be fifteen tickers to trade Netflix. And yeah, people will figure out which one the raw beta actual stock is. Um, but uh, boy, would it have been nice to have the exchanges come together and come up with some sort of naming convention for these things, like you know, a dot three, a dot two, a dot minus one, something like that, uh, that made it a little more obvious. Because as it is, it's going to be a mess. Well, I saw the uh, it was James Safer over at Bloomberg tweeted out that these things had been approved, and I almost fell out of my chair uh, yesterday yeah. afternoon because. <laughs> You, you know my feelings on a spot Bitcoin ETF, and I understand it's not apples to apples here in terms of the underlying market, but I just, I was beside myself. I could not believe that these things were approved and we still don't have a spot I, I Bitcoin ETF. Now, Nate, you're forming it in your head, and still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. You wear the shirt for a week. Uh, yeah, James actually tweeted out a, uh, a picture of Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas and I with the uh, the spot Bit- <laughs> or, and still no spot Bitcoin ETF shirts. All right, so th- that's a good uh, segue here. So, if you recall, when you last joined me, I think that was a few weeks ago, I had solicited some Twitter questions for us to answer. But then, unfortunately, I uh, proceeded to monopolize all of our time <laughs> discussing Bitcoin ETFs. And so we didn't get to all of the Twitter questions. And I wanted to make sure to come back to these because we did have some great questions that uh, that, that came in. So l- let's just go through these rapid fire, if you don't mind. Uh, I-, I wasn't planning on covering the single stock ETFs, but I think that's important. But let's try to hit, hit these as quick as we can. So 
the first one that I have for you, and I'm going to try to set this up properly. We'll see how I do. You join me back in May, right after you published one of my favorite pieces so far this year. It was titled The Ethics of Indexing Redux. And without getting all the way back down that rabbit hole, um, the, the gist of that piece was that you were trying to take a critical look at how investor flows, especially flows into passive index-based products, how those might be impacting securities prices. I would say primarily stock prices. And so the first question we have is from Eric McArdle uh, at E. McArdle Invest. He says, ETF flows obviously impact inelastic securities, which, by the way, I think of something maybe like the ARK ETFs and what we've seen out of those over the past couple of years uh, in the smaller cap space. Uh, and then he says, increasingly larger market cap positions, which was to the piece that you wrote. But here, here was the interesting part. He also asked, he says, uh, has Dave seen any evidence of impacts on the deepest markets like treasuries via funds like TLT, IEF, et cetera? And for people who aren't familiar, TLT is the iShares 20-plus year treasury bond ETF, and uh, IEF is their 7- to 10-year version. So, so Dave, have you looked at this on the fixed income side at all, or do oh, sure. you only focus on the equity side? No, no, no. I've definitely looked at it. Um, you know, the fixed income side is a little bit more interesting. The short answer is if we just look at something objective like premiums and discounts and how wildly things might be trading off, that gives us a nice way to look at the impact of sort of momentary flow versus those underlying markets, right? Because obviously, if everybody wants to sell the ETF, it's going to trade at a discount until there's enough of a spread versus the underlying that it drags the underlying down with you, if you will. You can think about it in both directions, of course. And yeah, we've seen over the course of this year a little bit more premium discount activity than we'd expect in some of the fixed income products. Um, HYG, for instance, has traded as much as down a percent and a quarter, up a percent and a quarter premium discount. Um, we've seen TLT uh, trade, you know, maybe 30, 40 basis points off of quote unquote fair value. Um, so, you know, two ends of the spectrum there, the most liquid bond market, a, a less liquid bond market, I wouldn't say the least, but certainly one of the less liquid bond markets tracked by ETFs. Honestly, things seem to be working okay there um, in terms of the short-term aspect. In terms of the long-term flow aspect, um, yeah, I, you know, I think you can apply that same math around the flow impact on pricing to effectively any asset class, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. just sort of how money pressure works. So when we look at bonds being bid up and relentless flow into the fixed income market, yes, you have to assume that there's a, a similar kind of multiplier effect in there. Now, the academic research I was re referencing in some of those papers um, didn't dig into specific, say, on-the-run bonds or something like that. Um, however, there's some golden work from five or six years ago that does look at um, so it's sort of the index inclusion and applied flow in bonds. And you absolutely do get sort of an elevated price effect on those bonds. It's such an interesting topic. I mean, I, I just think back to our Twitter spaces debate yesterday where you were making the point that it flows into to ESG funds overall. You know, there's sort of this momentum effect. And maybe that's a reason to be invested in uh, ESG overall. But let, let me ask you this, just going back to the shorter term, you, you mentioned the uh, the discounts that we've seen in some bond ETFs. And Look, it's been a very challenging year for bonds overall. I think everyone knows we're start to a year in history for the uh, the ag. And and so you look at some of the ETFs, you mentioned HYG. I show that that was trading at its steepest discount since March of 2020. And I, I should have checked this morning to see where it's at now. But do, do you feel like bond ETFs have handled everything uh, okay this year? And what's been a historically bad year yeah, for the bond market? Absolutely. 
absolutely. I mean, if you pull up like a premium discount chart on, on any of these things, yeah, if you go back to March 2020, we saw some pretty big disconnects there, you know, four or five, in some cases, 10% intraday uh, where we had the junk bond market shut down. But you look at that chart and you can understand why. We also had some rather dramatic price movements in March of 2020 as well. So that all makes sense. If we look really over the course of this year so far, it's been a little volatile, but it's not like particularly worse than, say, 2018. And we don't write papers about 2018 being a crazy year in the bond market necessarily. So uh, to me, it feels like the bond market has really held up quite well, especially when you can say in terms of in terms of trading and structure. Um, it, uh, obviously, the you know enormous impacts we're seeing. Uh, from the Fed activity, that's going to perturb the markets much more than any sort of intraday flow allocation from an ETF investor. All right. Another question that we received, and and by the way, this could be literally an entire hour-long show. So what I'm asking for here, Dave, is just your real high-level thoughts, your initial thoughts. You're just asking me to be short, Dave. Very, very (laughs) short. So uh, this comes from Ryan Kristapowicz, at Ryan K. ETF Models. And he's asking about the implications of the SEC uh, potentially making changes to the investment advisor rules. And he's curious how that might impact SMAs and model portfolio providers. And let me just add a little bit of color here for people who aren't familiar with this. This is a meaty topic, but I think it's an important one. So the SEC is contemplating whether uh, index providers and model portfolio providers, whether they should be regulated as investment advisors. Right now, they're not. And just anecdotally, I can tell you, even on this podcast, when I have someone on who is only speaking to an index and not the ETF itself, they can talk about whatever, other than actually saying the ETF ticker and name, but they can cover everything, performance or or whatever, in a lot more detail. Whereas if they're actually an ETF sponsor or an advisor, they're much more constrained in what they can say. And that's just one example. But but Dave, just any high level thoughts on this this topic, which I'm sure you'll be digging into. So very briefly, I think it was June 20th, they put out a request for comments looking at index providers, model portfolio providers, and also pricing services, which means the entire bond market gets scooped up into this as well. Um, and they're not proposing any rules. They're asking 40 probing questions about the nature of these businesses and how much interaction they have. I actually don't think this is going to go anywhere all that quickly. Um, there are very, very thorny issues with taking, say, you know, BlackRock and all of a sudden saying that they are uh, an investment advisor to the individuals invested in every fund underneath, uh, uh, sorry, not BlackRock, but like an S&P or an mm-hmm. MSCI, an index provider, I guess, Betify, uh, that, that we would then be caught up under this umbrella where we have direct sort of almost fiduciary, although not technically, uh, responsibility for each individual investor in a product based on something that we licensed. There's so many gaps in that process. I mean, it started with the fact that Running an index fund is not mechanical, and mechan- and index product issuers, a BlackRock, for instance, make a lot of decisions about implementation that the index providers have no knowledge of or input on. Um, and how you tease apart what is the discretionary part of running the fund versus what is the index provider making a decision to include X versus Y is really fraught. Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I could give you a two-hour version of this answer, but short-term I don't think there's anything to worry about in the next year or two. It's not even rulemaking yet. 
Um, I would suspect probably early next year we might start getting some some proposed rules. Um, I'm I'm all for sort of clear disclosures, disclosed methodologies. I think there's room for a few rules around the edges here, but swooping this entire part of the industry under this 1940 provision. Uh, it's just got so many unintended consequences. I'm just praying it goes away. Well, we'll be covering this in depth as, as you know the year goes along. But I want to read you once again, going back to SEC Commissioner Crenshaw. So on this topic and, and why the SEC is looking into it, she said, quote, ultimately, what index providers choose to include or not include in their index often determines what securities go into a fund and how investors perceive manager or fund performance. Model portfolio providers similarly may exercise significant discretion in creating investment models for their users, making adjustments to those models, reconstituting or rebalancing their portfolios, and by providing varying degrees of customization. So you can see they're, they're trying to find the line there in terms of you know what does constitute investment advice. I just think right. this is going to be fascinating to, uh, to track moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, they, they're really, they're, I, this strikes me as overreach, right? This is pretty subtle law, right? This is basically the whole issue of newsletter writers um, touting individual stocks. That's how we got the regulatory regime we're in now is an SEC case, which basically said, look, this guy may be a criminal, but he's allowed to say what he wants to say. That was literally the, the, the low case that they had to decide on this. So I, it seems really unlikely we're going to unwind all of that. All right, Dave, two minutes left. I have a question of my own for you, and I think you'll like this one, uh, given what we've seen play out in the equity markets this year. I'm really curious as to your thoughts on tail hedging ETF. So something like Cambria's uh, tail risk ETF, which has a 10 out of 10 ticker symbol, by the way, tail. Uh, But have you looked at these at all? The performance is a little uh, surprising. it, some of them have been really shown their stripes and some haven't. I will say all of them seem to be doing what they said they were going to do. It's just how well it's worked out in the current environment. Because remember, we're in more than a normal bear market. We're in a bear market possibly heading into a recession in a radically rising interest rate environment with high inflation. That's, that's not what these products were necessarily targeted for. <laughs> they were targeted to help you manage downside equity risk. Um, of the ones out there, the one that I would highlight as really surprisingly great would be BTAL, B-T-A-L, which is the AGFIQ U.S. Market Neutral Anti-Beta Fund. Um, this is one of those slightly complicated products that it, it doesn't just short the market. It shorts high beta stocks and goes long low beta stocks. So you stay invested to a certain extent. Uh, this thing is up 19.5% so far this year in a, in a year where the market is down 18.5%. That's called that's tail risk. <laughs> right? That thing has absolutely crushed it. You mentioned this product, TAIL. Um, that thing's about flat on the year, which is great. That means it's you know up about 17% over the market. So that's great. If you go through the longer sort of laundry list of funds out there, the Newsy, HEGD, SPD, um, They've all done a little bit. They've all helped you some, but they haven't quite delivered the way I think many people were expecting. Detail really has shown it, in my opinion, it's sort of head and shoulders above everybody else for this market, for this market where the high beta stocks are the ones that got crushed and the lower beta stocks actually managed to hang on. Well, Dave, always uh, so much fun. We, We never have a shortage of things to talk about, but nobody does this better than you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Nate. See you next time. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com ETFs. 
Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. My next guests are Bob Hum, U.S. Head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock, and Hitendra Varsani, Managing Director of MSCI Solutions Research. Of course, BlackRock offers the iShares lineup of ETFs, the largest ETF issuer in the world. And here in the U.S., they currently have nearly 400 ETFs with over $2.1 trillion in assets. Now, MSCI is a premier provider of indexes and portfolio construction, along with risk management tools and research. And both Bob and Hitendra are now on the line with me. Bob, Hitendra, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Okay, so look, we're going to focus on factor investing this week. And I should note, BlackRock currently offers 44 factor-based ETFs in the U.S., about $160 billion in assets. But I think this is an extremely timely topic because we're clearly seeing a shift in terms of which factors are working right now. I I think the value factor is probably exhibit A when you look at the performance spread between value and growth this year. But there are others. And I think if you consider the macro backdrop with inflation and rising rates, the bottom line is that a growing number of investors are considering whether they should look at some factor tilts in a portfolio versus simply allocating to a broad-based market cap-weighted index. So let's start with a few basics here, and then I do want to ask each of you about some specific factors. And and Bob, I'll start with you. I always like to offer some context on the topics I cover. So how do you like to describe factor investing? Like how should advisors and investors think about this high level? Yeah, Nate. uh, Well, thanks again for having me today. And and I think it's a really good question because, you know, factors have grown tremendously over the last decade. But I think a lot of investors and, and, and some advisors maybe don't have a good understanding of what factors are. And so the way that I like to think about factors, I think of them as rules-based, transparent, active. We're take, trying to take strategies that active management using their entire careers like value, quality, and momentum, and putting them in the ETF vehicle for more cash efficiency and lower cost, that's it. And so the way that I liken it is, is actually to Uber. And so, Nate, uh, you don't have to answer this, but, you know, I don't know if you've flown in LaGuardia recently, but it's a pretty terrible experience. I, I've done it and before. <laughs> it's it, it, uh, incredibly awful. Uh, and and it's, it's somehow it gets worse uh, over the years. Um, but if you, if you look 10 years ago, it actually was it was worse than today. And why? Because when I land in LaGuardia at 10 p.m. on a Thursday night, it, I'd wait in an hour long cab line. and It would cost me about one hundred fifty dollars to get to my apartment in New York City. You know, what did I do two weeks ago? When I landed in LaGuardia, I called an Uber. Within two minutes, a car is waiting for me, and it's half the cost. Right? Uber didn't change how I get from LaGuardia to my apartment. It just makes it lower cost, more efficient, exactly what we're trying to do with factory ETFs. Again, it's taking those time-tested strategies that you've already been using, again, value, quality, momentum, size, minimum volatility, putting in the ETF vehicle for that lower uh, cost and more tax efficiency. That's it. Hitendra, anything that you would add here? So factors allow uh, investors to take uh, exposure to very specific segments of the market. And as uh, Bob highlighted, you know, the concept of value has been around for a very long time, almost 100 years, selecting stocks that have low valuations versus eliminating those that have high valuations is nothing new. But the availability of ETF-linked indexes 
allow investors to access that exposure at much lower cost than um, say they used to, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Okay, so we, we mentioned the value factor here. Let's discuss that in more detail. And, of course, I think just about everyone knows the story of values challenges over the past uh, decade plus, right? It's been extremely challenging. Uh, but that started to change here over the past year or so. And one of the most popular iShares Factor ETFs is the iShares MSCI USA Value Factor ETF, ticker symbol VLUE. Uh, Hitendra, let, let's just continue with you here. Talk about what you're seeing from value this year. What, what, what's changed? I mean, let's take a step back. Uh, global equities have been down uh, 20% uh, or thereabouts in the first half of 2022. Um, and that's the worst six-month start of the year since our records going back to 1975. And what led that drawdown has been a number of risk factors, stubbornly high inflation, geopolitical risk, higher interest rates, quantitative tightening, potential recession, now within analyst downgrades, and that's all resulted in higher volatility. Now, when we turn to uh, say value versus growth indexes, uh, looking at MSCI USA, uh, value has outperformed growth by the widest margin on record since the 1970s. That performance differential between MSCI USA value versus MSCI USA growth is around a staggering 17.5%. So what's the takeaway here? It really did matter what side investors were positioned on from a factor perspective, whether they were on the value side or the growth side. And you can run similar parallels to other factors as well. I know a lot of advisors and investors are specifically concerned about inflation. Can you talk about value and its ability to to potentially hedge against inflation? So there's much talked about uh, the lost decade within value. And uh, if we look over 2010 to 2020, we were in a very low uh, uh, structural period of inflation, low growth, low interest rates and low performance for the value factor. Very different to the previous decade where value performance was very strong. Now, what's changed? I think we've all experienced uh, our bills at home are going up, whether it be energy bills or food bills. Now, that surge in inflation has actually coincided with a turnaround in the performance of value. Rates are now rising, and investors have preferred high-value stocks as opposed to low-value stocks. They've shied away from the high-risk growth stocks and rotated into um, value stocks. Okay, the other specific factor that I, I want to touch on here is minimum volatility. So currently, the most popular factor-based iShares ETF is the MSCI USA MinVol Factor ETF, ticker symbol USMV. And look, as everyone is well aware, markets have been much more volatile this year between the, the Fed and geopolitical events and everything else going on. And, and Bob will ask you, just talk about this MinVol strategy. What is this designed to do, and why do you think it can work over the longer term? Yeah, sure. So, so when you think about minimum volatility, what are we trying to achieve with this type of strategy? It's market-like returns with less risk. And to achieve those market-like returns, the, the way that these strategies work is that you know, they tend to outperform on the downside and try to um, uh, you know, capture some of the return or, or a decent amount of the return on the upside, typically about 80% of the upside and about 65% of the downside. And so why I think it's really interesting in this environment is really it's in, a, in a way for investors to stay invested, 
right? I think one of the, the most important things for an investor to do in times of volatility is stay invested. And so our, our view is that if you're able to reduce the downside, it inv- improves investor behavior um, quite a bit. And so one study that we did that I think is really interesting for this time, because again, I think uh, I want to reiterate, staying invested is, is the most important part here, is that we looked at the S&P 500 over the last 20 years. And if you invested $100,000 in the S&P 500, you'd be at about $600,000 today. But if you missed the five best trading days over a 20-year period, again, five days, that, that $600,000 is reduced to $390,000. Right? If you missed the 10 best days, it's $280,000. Right? So, again, I, I think the, the beauty of minimum volatility ETFs is by reducing some of the volatility uh, within the market, you can stay invested and, and hopefully generate that market return over the long term. You know, I love your point on investor behavior and staying invested. I always like talking about investor behavior. And, you know, I think with some other factor ETFs, say value ETFs, like we were just discussing, there can obviously be long periods of underperformance where investors have to stomach some really tough times in order to potentially capture the factor premium or benefit over the long run. And that's not always easy, right? Again, value is a perfect example over the past decade plus. Can you expand on investor behavior with minimum volatility? Like, do you find it as an outlier in this regard and that investors go into a minvol strategy knowing it's going to be a smoother ride? And so because of that, they're more likely to stick with it over the long run. Like, like in other words, are minvol investors better behaved than value investors? <laughs> uh, you know, look, I think there's two types of investors for minimum volatility ETFs. There's the tactical investor and the strategic investor. So the tactical investor is using this vehicle because they see the volatility being driven from inflation, from Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, USMV is outperforming the market by 700 basis points. And they're making that tactical trade. And so those types of assets, I think, uh, aren't sticky because they're not meant to be sticky, right? So that is going to rotate probably from minimum volatility to potentially momentum when trends start to form again. Or, um, you know, value, uh, maybe because they believe in inflation is going to be uh, here for longer. So I think on that front, uh, those aren't sticky assets. But on the other side of that, we do think minimum volatility ETF should be at a core of a portfolio. Right, because again, it can dr- drive market-like returns over the long term, and so we have seen a much stickier base on those assets. You know, USMV is, is over 25 billion in assets, and I think the biggest reason why, again, is that upside-downside capture. I kind of talked about it a little bit, but it generates roughly 80% of the upside and about 65% of the downside. Just to put those numbers into perspective, we looked at 1,450 U.S. equity mutual funds. Only six of them. Six out of 1,450 have a downside capture in line with USMV, and none of them have the upside capture, right? So again, I think it's a unique strategy that can sit at the core of a portfolio and has improved investor behavior, to your point. And by the way, I should note that iShares does offer an entire suite of minimum volatility ETFs, including the iShares MSCI EFA Minvol Factor ETF, ticker EFAV, and the iShares MSCI Emerging Markets Minvol Factor ETF, EEMV. There's also a, a, a global version. But on that note, Bob, I'm curious, just more broadly speaking, what are you seeing across your international factor-based ETF lineup right now? Because you do offer international versions for value, say like we were talking earlier, in Minval, quality, momentum. And from my perspective, I do feel like there's been a lot more debate recently about how prudent it is allocating internationally. I, I think a lot of investors are sort of uh, scarred 
by the massive underperformance of international over the past decade plus. And then you toss in geopolitical events and, and everything else. It's a topic of debate. Now, historically, I, I think we all know when we see that type of fear, that usually means it's a pretty good time to look at a particular area, right? But but what are you seeing in terms of investor interest in your uh, international factor ETFs? Yeah, it's funny. We, we've been debating international emerging markets for the last decade. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> sometimes the, the market beat can be irrational longer than you stay solvent. And so I think we have seen a big shift in investors thinking about, can we play international emerging market uh, regions a little bit differently, right? And, and I think over the last three years, one of the biggest trends that we've seen in factor investing overall is this move not away from maybe traditional market cap weighted exposures to things that are a little bit more defensive, right? So if you look at our quality and our minimum volatility ranges in international and emerging markets, they're at roughly $15 billion. And I think the reason why is because if you think about emerging markets, my old mentor used to say, they go up on escalators, but they go down on elevators, right? So it's great when it's great, but when it gets when it's bad, uh, we see significant volatility. And so uh, something like EEMV, or Emerging Markets Minimum Volatility ETF, is a way to play emerging markets, get that diversification, but do it with much less downside. Again, in that 65% range on downside over the long term. And so in a year like this year, with emerging markets down uh, almost 20%, EEMV is down, but it's only down about 13%. Right. Over the last year, EEMV is down 12% versus the market uh, down 25%. So, again, it's, it's a way to play those markets, get that diversification, but do it in a, in a risk-aware way uh, through minimum volatility. Yeah, and again, hopefully help on the investor behavior side as well. Uh, just a couple of minutes left here, as I know you're both well aware, there are a lot of factor-based ETFs on the market, and it, it seems like the list grows by the day. I'd love to have you talk about due diligence in this space, because I think this is perhaps the biggest challenge for investors, especially investors who haven't pursued factor tilts in the past, and they're looking at this this huge menu of options. Um, Hitendra, what are some key factors, no, no pun intended, that investors should consider when evaluating factor-based strategies? Yeah, sure. So I'll try to be brief. So um, when uh, investors are running due diligence on factor-based strategies or indexes, there are a few unstable uh, areas of focus. First is, does that uh, index or ETF, LinkedIn index, take exposure to sectors relative to the benchmark? Is it sector neutral or is it actually taking active sector positions? Now, when it comes to value, for example, it makes a significant difference. Uh, in performance, a sector neutral value index would have outperformed one that's non-sector neutral from MSCI World over the last 20 years or so. Second is uh, how are stocks being selected or tilted based on the target factors? So if we're looking at value, is it simply one descriptor like a price to book or is it multiple descriptors like earnings yield? Uh, enterprise to cash flow from operations, as well as price to book. So is it giving a holistic view of that uh, factor, or is it very um, narrow? Third is the level of exposure. Is it high or low? If it's a high exposure, that means it gives you, for example, value, a lot more value exposure. So when we see big rotations in the market, that's, uh, that's an exposure that could have a high active return. 
And finally, there are other aspects to consider as well, such as tracking error, turnover, and rebalancing frequency that ensures that the index or product limited index maintains that high fact exposure through time. Excellent words of wisdom. Bob Hitendra, just fantastic insight into factor investing and factor ETFs. Thank you very much for joining me this week. Thanks for having to be here. Thank you. That was Bob Hum, U.S. Head of Factor ETFs at BlackRock, and Hitendra Varsani, Managing Director of MSCI Solutions Research. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares, who just a few weeks ago, they launched the first and currently only U.S.-listed inverse Bitcoin futures ETF, the ProShares Short Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BITI, BITI. This already is nearing $70 million in assets, which is pretty good, uh, certainly helped by Bitcoin's recent declines. Now, of course, in October of last year, ProShares launched the first long-only Bitcoin futures ETF, the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, ticker BITO, B-I-T-O. That's obviously been a a very well-received product, given there is no spot Bitcoin ETF. So BITO currently has nearly $700 million in assets, and Simeon is now on the line with me from New York. Simeon, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks very much for having me. You know, it's funny. So uh, as I'm sure you recall, the last time we chatted was actually the day Bitto launched. I think you had just rung the uh, the bell at the NYSE. You're doing a bunch of uh, media that morning. There was just so much publicity around that launch. And now here we are less than a year later. You've rolled out the first short Bitcoin futures ETF. I- I'm curious, did the approval of the short Bitcoin ETF, did that take longer or was it shorter than you expected? You know, I, I, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm the investment strategy guy, so <laughs> uh, that, that's not my day-to-day job. So I'm not sure exactly what the timeline was, but we, we certainly were, we're, we're now the only folks who have both the, uh, you know, the long and the short exposure, as you, as you noted, BITO was, you know, perhaps the uh, most successful ETF launch in history. We garnered about a billion dollars worth of assets in just a, a few days back in the fall. And uh, we thought it was important to offer the opportunity for investors to either profit from moves the other way in Bitcoin or other portfolio hedging uh, needs that they might have. So we were really pleased to bring BITI. You went BITI. I think sometimes we go BITI, but we're we're open to alternative pronunciations. Yeah, I think that's a, a uh, really topic excited. of debate out on Twitter. I think some different people run run polls, but I'll take you. You're the you're the you're the issuer here, so you tell us how uh, it should be pronounced. Uh, but, but I'm going to go Biddy. All right. So I, I'm going to take your convention here. So let's talk Biddy and its construction. 
And then, you know, I want to talk more about BitO and in a spot Bitcoin ETF. So, so Biddy seeks to offer the inverse return of the S&P CME Bitcoin futures index on a daily basis, which quick note on that, ProShares is very clear on their website that due to the compounding of daily returns, if you're holding the CTF for longer than a day, you might get uh, potentially substantially different returns than expected. And, and Simeon, we can certainly talk more about that. But first, just explain how the CTF is actually getting its exposure. Yeah, so this is a, this is an inverse fund, so it's short the futures. And, and the futures is important, both for BITO, for BITO, and Biddy. Uh, yeah, it, if on, on, first, let's, let's just start with the futures market, and then we'll talk about the shorting aspect. So it's very interesting. If you look at what's happened in um, Bitcoin this past year, you know, as the saying goes, when the tide goes out, you kind of see what people are wearing when they go swimming. And of course, there's been a lot of stress in just that regular spot market uh, with the lenders. Every day you see another lender having problems. But even in the simple Bitcoin exchanges, the largest U.S. exchange in their last 10Q had to disclose that in the event of a bankruptcy, client accounts may not be segregated and protected. So that's a lot of hair on on sort of regular almost what, what you you might think are regular ways to get exposure and in the meantime the futures market has matured quite nicely so on the long side with BITO you can see that the performance is spot on the uh, the uh, the bitcoin galaxy index and what that tells you is the roll cost thing you know mm-hmm. the need to if you're on the long side invest sequentially in the next futures contract and the next one as they roll over, that's collapsed to almost nothing, which is actually what ought to happen when the market matures and becomes efficient because there's no storage costs there. So yeah, it, it, it stands in contrast to a spot market that's getting a little chaotic, a futures market with a clearinghouse that you know manages counterparty risk and the benefits of a 40-act ETF, really critical. And on the short side, we're really pleased to bring BITI to the market because it's it's really challenging to try to short Bitcoin. Even if you could do it in a brokerage account, in a, in a Bitcoin brokerage account, it's hard. And the cost of that margin could be anywhere from 5 to 20%. So, you know, bringing out BITI, Biddy at 95 basis points in an ETF, nice and easy to execute, we thought uh, – you know, completed uh, uh, completed the package of, of both sides of the of the coin from our as a solution to investors. I mentioned a potential shortcoming of Biddy is that it does have that daily reset, so there could be some negative compounding effects. And I also think it's important to note, e- even though to your point on what the the current Bitcoin futures market looks like, the the, the futures curve, if that market is in backwardation. There could be a negative performance drag with that as well on, on this short exposure because you have to roll that that short exposure every month. So I do think those are two important things for investors to understand. However, to what you were alluding to, I also think it's important for investors to compare the CTF to other ways they might attempt to short the price of Bitcoin. So can, can you maybe just talk a little bit more about both of those areas? So the potential issues with the daily reset and enrolling futures. But then on the other hand, the, the potential, uh, again, lower costs and convenience benefits of Biddy compared to, say, just straight up short selling futures on your own or buying puts on other Bitcoin related products, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, this is a very efficient way to get short exposure. And also, let's not forget one of the most obvious benefits that 
Uh, if you invest in, in, in Biddy as an ETF, you can't lose more money than you invest. That's a, that's a big piece of the equation. And look, the daily reset is important. Uh, I, you know, I'll almost spin it on its head as a little bit of a risk management piece because every morning you wake up and you know what that exposure is. So, uh, yeah, it, again, you want, as you noted, you should pay attention to it. Uh, but to some extent, it's a feature, not a bug. And, and again, a very efficient way to get that short exposure to compare to um, just about any other way that you would be seeking that in the current uh, market construct. Okay, going to the long version of this strategy, the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF, BitO. Again, this whole CME traded Bitcoin futures, primarily uh, front month, uh, their, their second month exposure there too. But again, you were first to market. And back when this launched, there was a lot of criticism, honestly, including for me. I was very vocal about this potential performance drag of rolling futures every month because the Bitcoin futures market had historically been in contango, and that can be a negative with a long strategy. But to what you were saying earlier, if you look at the performance since inception, uh, and, and this is through yesterday, I'm showing Bitto is down around 70%, while the spot price of Bitcoin is down just a, a hair less than that, which is pretty darn good over nearly nine months. And that includes your fee. And let me just add, some people may hear, oh, you know, Bitcoin is down 70%. See, there shouldn't be a, a Bitcoin ETF. That's not ProShare's job, right? So, I mean, your job is to offer the exposure, exposure that people are already getting elsewhere, I might add. Uh, your job is to offer that exposure as efficiently as possible. And it looks like that's what's being done. I guess my question is, can you just expand on why has this ETF tracked so close? I know you talked a little bit about this earlier, that the market has matured, but is it as simple as the shape of the futures curve over the past nine months or so? Well, so it is the shape of the futures curve, but that is a reflection of the maturation of that futures market. So, yeah, it's from the from the very beginning of the history of the futures, um, that futures curve was a little steeper. So, you know, when we launched, people looked backwards and said, I think you're going to have some roll costs that are material. And as it's turning out, they're not there. And, you know, it, this goes to first principles. If you think about what the cost of uh, of a, of a, of or what the shape of the curve should be slash the cost of the roll should be. Um, it really should be something like a very short-term risk-free rate if there's no storage cost because you can, you know, simply, you know, through triangular arbitrage, there shouldn't be any money to be made there other than uh, a short-term risk-free rate. So the roll cost coming down to almost nothing is consistent with what ought to happen in a mature in a maturing market, and that's what we've seen. Besides that aspect, how do you feel like the product has been operating on the back end? Because again, I remember there being a, a lot of concerns around things like CFTC imposed position limits. There were concerns around uh, futures commission merchants. And again, I, I'll be honest, I was vocal here as well. I'm not, I'm not going to hide from that. But I'm assuming you feel everything is working just fine here. Uh, the way I think about it is um, we at ProShares are Bitcoin futures experts. So I have. I, I will actually say that I have been to a mine. <laughs> I have actually been to a mine in the desert next to a big power plant with the servers in the in the water bath. So, but if you want to start talking to me about forks and things and stuff, um, that's not. I, I know some of it to be dangerous, but our job is to be futures experts and know how to run funds like this. And it's part of the legacy of ProShares. 
um, that you know we are experts at running ETFs using futures and swaps and things, and, and that's what we do best. And, and uh, uh, we've been doing it quite well since the, uh, since, since the inception of the firm and uh, since the launch of BITO and BITI. And, and by the way, a data point for listeners, so this courtesy of Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas, he noted yesterday that BITO has passed GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, an average daily volume this year. So trading $170 million a day uh, shows you investors turning to this vehicle to get that Bitcoin price exposure. We uh, we had a uh, we had a toast. We we toasted our cold <laughs> brews. We toasted our cold brews this morning when uh, when we uh, all uh, saw that news. So we're proud of that. Absolutely. All right, uh, Simeon. Let's close by talking spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, the SEC recently uh, disapproved filings from Grayscale and Bitwise. Grayscale is now suing the SEC. And look, I know you're not an attorney. You made that abundantly clear to me last time I tried pressing you on some of these <laughs> questions uh, in October. And uh, and we started off our conversation by, I think you uh, reminded me of that. But uh, can you offer any sort of perspective here? I, I mean, I keep saying that if bad actors are actually able to manipulate the spot Bitcoin market, that's going to impact CME traded futures as well, because these two markets are intertwined. So from my perspective, if the SEC is comfortable with a futures-based product, then they should be comfortable with a spot product as well, because these both would take pricing references from the exact same crypto exchanges. There, there, there's no difference in, in that regard. I, I'll get off my soapbox, but from your perspective, we're now 10 years uh, since the Winklevoss twins filed for the, the, the first spot Bitcoin ETF. 10 years. When does this all end? So I'll make two points. First, <laughs> the one that we've just discussed, that the very well-functioning futures market um, and the volume that you noted has been making, uh, you know, BITO not a second-class choice at all, but a first-class choice for Bitcoin exposure. So we'll start there. The second point I would make is back to what I, I think you can call some chaos in that spot market. You know, if assets aren't segregated in a simple brokerage account, and if you know folks have to look in the dumpster for their key um, for custody, you know th that's a market that's not quite mature yet. I can't comment on what's in the mind of the SEC or what a timeline might be, but if you're just looking at the way the world's working right now, the spot market's not the, the futures market is a little bit more mature than the spot market. And when you put the futures market protections together with a 40 act ETF, uh, it's a pretty robust alternative right now. Well, Simeon, congrats on getting uh, Bitty. I'll make sure to call it that, not BitEye. Congrats on getting that to market. Clearly, ProShares has a real knack for reading the uh, the regulatory tea leaves on this stuff. So. Uh, again, congratulations on that, and thank you for joining me this week. Thanks for having me again. Take care. That was Simeon Hyman, Global Investment Strategist at ProShares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Capital Group. If you would like to learn more about Capital Group's ETFs, you can visit capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Phil Huber, CIO at Savant Wealth an author of The Allocator's Edge. We're going to have a, a lively conversation around alternative assets that I think you'll enjoy. And then Blue Horizon's Tim Johnston will spotlight the strategy behind the Blue Horizon New Energy Economy ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.